term has just ended in Israel, and as I sit to record, my tefillah is that all of our tefillahs on such a special day, Purim, should be answered by Hashem. All those that need a refuah, all those that need any help from HaKadosh Baruch should get it. Karov Nacha. Our learning of Parakid Aleph is dedicated for all in need. When when we left off last time, the southern kingdom was in the process of being wiped out. We had the miracle of Shemesh Begibon Dom, the Yareach Bein alone, whether that literally happened, or as the Ralbag said, it just was the feel of this very, very, very long day. Either one is possible. Uh, but what is clear is that when this is over, the southern kingdom uh, and all that's there is on the verge of collapse. We're going to watch the conclusion of that as we finish Parakyod today. And then we'll conclude with Parakyod Aleph and see how the northern war goes as well. Parakyod Pasach Chavchet, that Makedel HaKad Yoshua Bayom Ahu Bayakelofi Charev, that Malkach Rimotam. So what happens? Makeda, the city where the kings had been hidden right there. So it was destroyed by Yoshua. He kills it by the sword. That Malka Echerim, um, and its um its king was also killed. They call Nefesh Shabalo Hishir Sarit. And no one, no one, no one survives at all. And what happens next? He does, to, he does to Makeda, like the king of Makeda, like does to the king of Yericho. Pasuk Chav Ket. Vayavor Yoshua v'chol Yisrael imo mimakeda livna. And he goes to all the Jewish people to Makeda to livna. And vayilachim im livna. He goes to battle with livna as well. Vaytain Hashem gam utabi ad Yisrael v'malka vayakea l'fi So what happens? He he takes out that king and that city as well. Lufi Kharev by the sword, the Kalnefesh Basarit. Again, no one survives. And he does the same thing to him as he does to Yericho. Okay, so he's he's destroyed two cities in a row. First Makeda, then Livna, and the kings with them as well. Now, if you recall from last time. He said that there was a confederation of kings, five of them, as Yerushalayim and Chavron, Yarmut, uh, Lachish, and Eglon. Those are the five kings. So Makeda's collateral damage along the way, and the same thing with Livna as well. And they go from there to Lachish. And when they get to Lachish, they actually, they sieged it. And that's the fascinating part about this, is that unlike, unlike the previous two uh, battles, which seem to just be complete wipeouts, here there's a siege that happens first. Right? On the second day, they, they, they capture Lachish, and they kill all the people in there. Just like they had done to live not. Absent in this story, though, is there's no king. Now, the obvious answer is there's no king because that king was trapped in the cave in Lachish. 
So he was already killed. Now, this is what happens next. And we're going to have to spend a little bit of time understanding this. And I had the opportunity a few months ago, back in uh, November, to actually visit Gezer. It's, it's an amazing, amazing archaeological site. So what happens? As a Lahoram Melech Gezer, Lahzor, Lachish, Gezer, the king all the way up north, north of Makeda. He doesn't care about Makeda. He doesn't come to his help. He doesn't come to Livna's help, but he comes to the help of Lachish. Now, why is that? Is it because he has an alliance with him? Or is there a strategic um, piece at play here? All good questions. So Gezer, they come all the way down, and Yoshua, part of his force, goes, attacks Lachish, attacks Gezer after Lachish, and completely wipes them out. From there, he goes on to, after defeating Gezer, he goes on and fights against Eglon. And he, he sets um, he sets siege to it, and he be, he goes to war with it. And they, they destroy the entire city of Eglon. On that day, he destroys it. The same way he had done to Lachish. So Yoshua is doing great. He has now successfully beaten five armies in the south. Now, in terms of a time frame here, other than the fact that we know that, that, that Lachish was a two-day battle, and uh, Makeda and Livna seem to be a one-day battle, Eglon as well, not sure, we don't really have a time frame with Gezer either, but this seems to be one after another after another. They go up to Hebron, and they set battle to it. Now, if you're looking at the map, what you notice is that the idea of going up seems to be incredibly strange. They're not really going up there because when we normally think about up is north. And they're not going up. They're actually going east. So it's not north. So why are they going up? So Eglon and Lachish are in the are south of the Beit Shemesh area, and they are lower down, going up to the mountains of Hebron. So what happens? Again, they do the same thing. They wipe out Hebron. But interestingly, it says Ve'et Malka. And it's king. There is no king. The king was killed in Makeda. What's going on? All its cities. It tells you that Hebron was a bigger area than just one city. So what's going on here? So the Mitzvah Sion says, Now it could be that they had more time. Look, there's just, this is battle number six. They had time to appoint a new king and see what the king could do. Or alternatively, it's possible just simply that there was something culturally that required them to have a king. And so they have a king while Lachish and Eglon do not. Okay, all possibilities. What happens? Um, they do everything just like they kill all the people that are there. From there, he set, he heads out to Devir, goes to battle with them, and uh, destroys all of them. 
He had done the same thing, just as he had done to Hebron, and just as he had done to Livna, he does to the people of Devir as well. He wipes out everyone. This is not, he's not limited here. The mountains and the valleys, the, the south and the flatlands and the springs, everything in that area is wiped out. Now, before we move on to Pasuk Mem Aleph and beyond that, um, actually, you know what? Let's let's do two or three more. Two, let, let's finish the parak and then we'll go back to the Gezer issue. So he, he fights from Kadesh Barnea, which is a place that we're familiar with. If you look at the inset on the map, you'll see Kadesh Barnea, either one of those, not sure which one it is. But that is the place that the spies will set out from in Parsha uh, Shlach. So from there, Ad Azan, until Azan, until uh, you can see the, uh, the uh, Gaza Strip right there, till there. They call Eretz Goshen, not Givon. From Eretz Goshen to Givon. Givon, we know where it is. Givon is right is right there. So we are familiar with the city of Givon, but where's Eretz Goshen? Is that all the way back in Egypt? So, so the uh, the consensus amongst the Mepharshim is no. That's exactly, Radag says it bluntly, don't think they went all the way to Egypt, they didn't go that far. But in the desert, the Sinai desert, there was a place called Goshen. They got that. More than one Goshen. Okay. The Yeshua wipes them out one time in one campaign. Radak says, This was not a long, drawn-out battle. Rather, they do it in one shot, and it's all done with. Okay. We're going to address Gezer in just a moment, but let's take a look. They beat a king there, and then in Livna, and in Gezer, and Hebron, and Devir. Obviously, Hebron being the one that doesn't make any sense, doesn't we, we explain that, uh, yeah, it's, it's a possibility that uh, Hebron just needed a king. Now, what's the deal with Yarmut, and what's the deal with Yerushalayim? We don't know. Does not They don't get back to Yarmut and Yerushalayim, at least not in the text. Yerushalayim will remain a city that is, uh, that is uh, ruled by uh, foreign rulers for quite some time. Yarmuto, I'm, I'm not sure if we really see much about it. We're going to have to leave those as questions. But here, I think, is the big question that we have to try to understand. What is the deal with Gezer? What were they doing? Why, why would they think it's a good idea to attack? Now, I want you to take a look at the pictures from my day in Gezer. It's actually a good story. Um, we were going to probably spend Malki and I about two hours in Gezer and see the entire site. But as we were walking, uh, you can see it's actually quite a massive area. So around there behind us, you can see actually how far it just goes up north, uh, south rather, down south rather. It is unbelievably astounding how beautiful and how gorgeous and how far you can see in a clear day. So Gezer actually was strategically in a wonderful place. And it's not far off from the road that takes you along Shalavim to Latrun, which can take you down to Beersheba. It's a good coastal route that can get you pretty, pretty far. So, okay, 
this is the city of Gezer. It's strategically amazing um, for the person that possesses it. We chose not to keep walking because we were the only people there until we stumbled upon four men that did not look necessarily friendly. Uh, they were a few hundred feet away from us, and we decided that we were going to not continue to go on our trail, and instead we headed back to the car. So we only got to see some of it, but I just want you to see a little bit of it. So first off, the the, the depths of how far Gezer can reach should tell you that with arrows and, and other weapons, Gezer has quite a bit of control over quite a lot of space. But I think the important thing to actually take a look at is look at the size of these walls it is massive. And they actually have their own water source. It is a uh, very, very long staircase that goes very deep under the ground. And by going down there, you'll be able to get enough water. This city will not have a problem being with a siege. Why? Because they have so, so many resources within their city walls, including water. Um, now, the, the Knanite Tower, which is what is pictured on the left here, it is uh, just a little bit of it, but it is the, um, the biggest um, of its kind. It is really, really thick and deep and very well protected. In all of Israel, in all of their excavations, they have not found one um, as large as this one. And so this is an amazing fortress, military center. Gezer was definitely a city that was to be reckoned with. And so the question then becomes, why does Gezer leave their city? And so for this, um, I'll share with you a beautiful idea that might give us a little bit of understanding, and that is the Dat Mikra. It says, Gezer is a famous city. And in the northern part of the southern flatlands, it is one of the most strategically important cities. It and Lachish were lined up together. It was along the strategic coastal route from Egypt to Babylonia. Lazor. So they go. Why? Because they feel that they are just as likely to fall if Lachish falls. So they go to help Lachish, and by helping Lachish, they end up also falling. But perhaps Yoshua once again, in a stroke of good luck, but we'll we'll call it Hashkacha Pratis, we'll call it the will of God. God lures Gezer out. Even though Gezer could have chosen to remain in their fortress and said, bring it on. We think we could last. They come out and it makes Yoshua's job all the more easy. Pasuk Mem Gimel, with this we'll finish Perek Yod. Yod. So Yoshua comes back with all the people to Gilgal. Now, Barbell points out that actually it doesn't really, it's, it's not really like that, but rather until now we got Klau, that was at the beginning, we were told that what? They went back to Gilgal. All the Pratim of the war come out, and then what ends up happening is we conclude by them going back to where they went. They went to Gilgal, and the war is. Over the war has concluded. The southern kingdom is completely taken over. 
the Jewish people are in control. That takes us to Parakid Aleph. Parakid Aleph is the Northern War. Now, if you take a look at the map that's here, you'll notice that there are a lot of places in the North that they're going to have to battle. Some of them you could actually go till today. Um, Megiddo is an amazing, um, amazing, amazing uh, tell, great archeological site, Chatzor as well. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff to see. So what happens? Perek, Yud Aleph, Pasuk Aleph. So Vahikishma, Yavin al Chatzor, Yavin hears. Now, if you remember back to the beginning of Perek Yud, we had the same language there. What are we told at the beginning of Perek Yod? So I will read you the passage. King Adonit Tzedek, he heard. Well, when Yavin hears what happened to the southern kingdom, where Yoshua marches through so quickly, so efficiently, so with such strength and routes them, he prevents the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom from being able to unite. And now the southern king's gone, it leaves the northern kings with an opportunity to unite one time, unless they want to run the risk that Yahushua will cut them off strategically to prevent them from uniting as well. So what happens? So we don't know exactly where those cities are, but don't. We have uh, on, the, on the map, where is Madon? Not sure. But we have Shimron, Achshaf, uh, those are some of the kings on and on, on our map. So he reaches out to all the kings. So you have the Kananim in the east and the west. And you have the Amori, the Chiti, the Prizi, the Vusi, and the mountain, Vachivi, Tachet, Hermon, Vachivi, all the way up north by the Hermon, the Eret Hamitzvah, in the, the place of the lookout. Now, this is the first time we're told that there's a group of kings, a confederate of army troops that are coming not just with soldiers, but they're bringing what? They have horses. And their chariots, and a lot of them. They all come into this place. They all arrive together in Memarom. And that is where they're going to all unite to fight the Jewish people. Hashem says to Yoshua once again, don't be afraid. They're all going to die. And I'm giving you the following, the following command. When you win, I want you to kill their, to kill, burn their chariots, and I want you to maim their horses. You're actually to remove a, a muscle from the leg of the horse, which will effectively eliminate its powers as a military uh, vehicle, but it'll be able to use farm work. So the animal won't suffer, but the animal will no longer be able to fight against the Jewish people. Why, why does God have to come and give him once again this, this pep talk? Is he really afraid? It doesn't seem like he's afraid. Yoshua doesn't seem to have that. And yet Yoshua is told that all along. And why, why this command? 
to destroy the chariots. So I'll share with you the Abarbanel. The Abarbanel is an amazing answer. The reason that Yoshua has to do this is because he doesn't, God does not want the Jewish people to say, whoa, look at all these tanks, these chariots, and these amazingly powerful weapons that we've gotten. It's all us now. No, no. Incapacitate the horses, burn and destroy the chariots. It is because Hashem is the one that wins. We say this almost every day. Our ne- the, the non-Jewish enemies, what do they come with? They come with their chariots, says David Melech. They come with their with their horses. The shame Hashem We come with God's name. It's an interesting point that I, I believe I heard from one of my tour guides um, back on trip number one. He pointed out that historically, Jewish people don't have chariots. It just is the way it is. And some of their enemies do. Now, there's two pieces to it. Obviously, there's the piece of the religious piece of it. The fact that we don't need it. If God is going to help us, we're going to win no matter what anyway. But there also is just the possibility that the Jewish kingdom wasn't as strong as some of its neighboring nations. So God doesn't want us to possibly have this false impression that it's us. We're the ones that are doing it. God says, no, I want you to destroy that. Can you imagine? Imagine nowadays an army that's facing challenges from much more superior foes. What do they do? They keep destroying their, their, their weaponry. Can't imagine that. One would imagine the opposite. They'd, it's a harvest. If we win and there are these chariots at our disposal, all of a sudden our army goes from here and goes to there. And God says, no, that's not how I operate. What I want you to do is I want you to leave the chariots, leave them in the fields, destroy them, get rid of the horses. I will tell you that the Jewish people have a secret weapon. Of course, the secret weapon is a Kodesh Baruch but Yoshua uses a tactic twice that wins for him. Take a look at Bas Kazain. They come to Maimarom. They come to the central point where all of the non-Jewish nations have collected. They come Pitom. We had the word Pitom last time as well. Why do they come Pitom? Because nobody expects it. It's unheard of to think that the Jews can get there so quickly. So they're assembling, they're getting ready, and then boom, out comes Yoshua. All the way up. Sidon, Sidon along the coast, that's how far up north they go. In two different directions, along the coast, all the way to Sidon, and toward, past the Hermon to become Mitzvah Nobody is laughing. So what they do. They they listen to what they're what they're instructed to do, and they get rid of the ability of the horses to walk in a military way and they destroy their chariots. 
So why do we do this? The Barbanel gives us a great answer. It's for us to understand what? But Remer has another answer. He says that a lot of the vehicles that are used in war are not inherently bad. Think about a Seuss. Think about a horse. Is a horse bad? It's not inherently bad. A horse can be used in the field can be used as a, as a means of transportation, can be a use of commerce. And yet, what happens here is, it is the, the purity of purpose is completely lost. And not only that, but it's turned completely the opposite way. We don't have to look very far to see in the days that we live in, how many regimes take things that are, are fairly fairly neutral, and yet they turn them into something that is so destructive. You know, if you think about the Holocaust, trains. Trains are, are not things that we think of as weapons of mass destruction. Yet, it's the vehicle that led to the slaughter of so many of our people. But Remmer says that that's what happens. So when society turns something good, or something neutral into something so bad and so destructive, we can't then take it and use it. We have to make sure that it can never be used in that way again. The chariots, so long as they're chariots and they've got wheels and they're working, they can always be turned back into tanks. So says Rivremer, gone. The horses, removing that piece of the horse to prevent it from ever being able to be a military-grade horse, that does the same thing. And so the Jews win. And the sense when we read these psukim are, it's a quick win, a short route, few days, and we're all done. But if you read, as we read, rather, the next couple psukim, we're going to see it's not quite the case. So what happens? So they, Chatzor is the king, the head, the, the, the driving force of this entire army, they're wiped out. Chatzor was burnt by fire. Amazing thing Rabbi Hatton points out. They, we found Chatzor. Chatzor is north of the Kinneret. We found Chatzor. And when they found Chatzor, they found burn. And the burns, the stuff that's burnt there dates back to the time of Yoshua. Do I need that? Would I not believe in the authenticity of our Psukim if I didn't have that? No. But it feels pretty good when you get that. And they do what they're, what they're told. They destroy these cities just like Moshe told them to do. The only exception is the cities that were built. So what does that mean? So Rashi says if they had big, strong walls, the walls, unlike Yerifa, were not destroyed. The, those um, were held up. They didn't destroy those cities. Why? 
because the Jewish people could actually live there. Bechol, except for Chatzor, Chatzor, we have to make a point with Chatzor, but the rest now. But the Jewish people keep everything else. There's no mitzvah to, to burn it all. Except the people. The people can't live. Again, this is a very hard one. How do we understand that? How do we understand the command to kill all the men and children? It's a hard one. Why can't we just leave the Canaan there? Why can't we get along? So I want to share with you a beautiful idea that Rev. Remmer suggests. He says, you know, and, and, and this, I think, we, we see this all the time. He says, when, when, if the Canaanim had lived there, the Canaanim would actually say to them, listen, you know we were there long. We've been here for the last few hundred years. Nobody, no Jewish person has come visited as much. Now you're telling us it's, all, it's yours? It's called Eretz Canaan. It's been called Eretz Canaan for, before Avram even got there. It's our land. If Remmer says that we hear the Canaanim explaining why it's their land, and eventually, you know what happened? It's like, you know what? They make a good point. And they're here. They want to sue for peace. They want part of the land. Says Rav Remmer, that's why the Canaanim can't be there. They present an amazing challenge to the continuity of the Jewish people in Israel. Nothing, nothing, nothing at all was left out. They did everything that they were told to do. Why do we need this passage? Why, why the focus on this? So the Malbim says something amazing. Amazing. Why is the Torah telling us this? Because Moshe is the Eved Hashem and Yeshua listens to everything he says. This is the chain. This is the Mesorah of the Torah. Even though if, Yoshua, if Moshe had been the conqueror, perhaps miracles would have been greater. Yet Yeshua is true to what he's told that he has to do. I want to share with you an idea by the Ma'avor Ha'aret. He says, He says, this isn't the only war. But once it tells us that this is divinely inspired, what we're doing is what we have to do. So what happens? We don't have to go into all the details of the war. There's less details here than anywhere else. Why? Because the key part is for us to know that we do whatever God wants. We listen to everything that he's told by what, what is that? What else? Is everything, the whole land. We're talking about the other side of the Jordan also, or the other side of uh, the to the east of the Kinneret. Everything. Everything they do, they 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 are, they're do it properly. Remember, I know he's been our go-to on this parak, says something amazing. 
says, why is it that we have four battles with Yericho? Lots of details. I, lots of details. Southern Kingdom, lots of details. Northern Kingdom, not much at all. For the amount of battles and the amount of time it takes, we have so few details. Ask Zeremer, why is that? Doesn't make any sense. We should have more. So he goes into a beautiful analysis. Yericho is all God. Jewish people are just there for the I, God gives them the strategy. There's the Kido. More a part of the, of the Jew, more the Jewish people. The third battle, there we begin to see a shift. The Jews do most of the winning. Yes, God helps. Most of the winning happens before the hailstone. Before it's true. But still, God is present in the in the battle. Here in the north, we don't see any presence of God. The only thing is that we're told at the end, because they did everything that they were supposed to do. We don't need that. It's not necessary. It's pretty amazing. It's actually the exact same thing. Uh, yeah. But what Rav Remer is saying, Mavor Ha'aret, it is his Sefer, Mavor Ha'aret, is he saying something amazing? He wants us to know that really the key piece is that it's all, it's all God. It's all God, even though not so much we don't see it, but God is the one that is making it all happen. Okay? So now, for many, many, many days, many years, actually, Yoshua does battle with all the, the Malachim. Rashi points out something that Radak says the same thing. It's a little hard to understand. He says, what does it mean many years? The Medina says that Yoshua actually dragged out the battle. He was told that he would live, so he would live for the Kibush. So he said, listen, the conquering takes a year, I'll live another year. If the conquering takes 10 years, I'll live 10 more years. So he drags it out in order to live longer. That is what the Rashi and Radak suggest. So we are told that what? Nobody made peace except for the Yoshve Givon or the Chivi. Um, Everybody else fought. It is interesting that Shechem is also called the Chivi, and there is no indication that there is a battle with Shechem. So that's something to think about also. What happens? God gives them the strength. It's like Paro. Paro is given the strength to fight, even though, even though. He really probably wants to give in, but he he he's given the fortitude, the courage to maintain his battle. They as well. 
Because God wanted the Jewish people to be able to wipe them out. Yushua goes and destroys the giants that are in the mountains in Hebron, Tvir, Anav, and all the mountains of Yehudah. They only remain in the coastal cities of Aza, Gat, and Ashtod, which are the Plishti cities. The battle is over. Everybody gets the land, and the uh, the land is quiet. It sounds amazing. It sounds amazing. And yet, what we're going to find out next time, and in the subsequent weeks, and at the beginning of Shoftim, is this pasuk is a little bit misleading. It's not exactly a happy ending. It's not exactly everything working out just so. But rather, what's going on? The Jewish people have won a lot. But unfortunately, they didn't get to everything. And the everything that they didn't get to is going to end up getting back at them. And so as we continue, we're going to see the consequences of the Jewish people not fully winning. Have a wonderful week. Thank you for joining us and continue to walk with the prophet.